you're not healing if everyone always likes you, including your parents. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. How's it going? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I'm a total shit show and I am an adult child. And I realized that after dating two alcoholics named Brian back to back, and if you want to hear that story, go listen to the very first episode. You will be highly entertained. This is required listening around here. Um, And I also just suggest you listen to some of those episodes in the beginning, uh, which is where I share my story. So in the show notes, I've included some of those episodes, but I just think it's uh, this podcast is going to be a more enjoyable experience for you if you know my backstory. And I promise that you will be entertained, okay? Also, to folks, there's a, another issue with my microphone. I have the worst luck with microphones. I have to get a new cord. So I'm recording this on uh, directly on my computer speaker. I just spent about 15 minutes trying to decide, did it sound better if I record it through the computer or does it sound better that I do it on my iPhone and computer one? So today we are diving deep with Morgan Pommels. So she is a therapist. She's a coach. Uh, She is up in Canada and her specialty, her area of focus is um, adult children of emotionally immature parents. So a few months ago, I had Lindsay Gibson on the podcast. So she is the uh, woman, the therapist who coined this term, adult children of emotionally immature parents. So I will include the link to that in the show notes. But what's an emotionally immature parent? It's essentially a parent that is emotionally unavailable. And I would venture to say that qualifies for for all of our our parents. Um, But I wanted to go through the four different types of emotionally immature parents to see which ones y'all relate to. So the first one, this is from an article I found. So the first one is um, emotional parents. So like their name indicates, they're run by their feelings. Their feelings drive their action and behaviors. They might be overwhelming and then abruptly withdraw from you. They need others, you, to stabilize their feelings. Small slights of the world are treated like catastrophic moments. You feel this. This instability and unpredictability make for a very dynamic and chaotic upbringing because you never knew what to expect. So next we have the driven parents. So driven parents appear to be normal. They're getting things done. However, if you were raised by driven parents, the irony if you, is that you might end up being unmotivated or lacking in self-control. This is because the driven parents' mindset is that you have the same goals and approach to life as they do. Boy, do I relate to this shit. This is my dad. Um, they know what's good for you. They have the answers. They don't encourage separate paths or goals for you, but selectively give praise for what they want to see and push away the rest. Your parents' upbringing was also not emotionally available and in an emotionally deprived environment. They got by by going it alone. They are self-made and proud of their independence and have raised you the same way. Yes, 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 yes. So next we have a, the passive parents. 
So they take a hands-off and laissez-faire approach to dealing with whatever life throws at them. Although comparatively they are less harmful than the other types, this type of parenting still has negative effects. They may allow abuse or neglect by the parents towards you by turning their cheek and ignoring it and looking the other way. They are emotionally neglecting you. They minimize and acquiesce to problems. And then last but not least, we have the rejecting parents. Lovely. These folks, they are walled off and prefer to spend time alone. You get the feeling early on that your parent would rather not be around you. You will find them blowing up, demanding or commanding, and isolating from family life. This is a really, really good conversation with Morgan. Uh, but first, let's talk about what you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. This is my online community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. I've had a few people reach out recently asking, when are the groups? I'll tell you right now. Sundays, 3.30 p.m. Eastern. Mondays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern. And Thursdays, uh, 8.30 Eastern. I have those also written down in the show notes. This is a place for you to find like-minded individuals who uh, know exactly what you're going through and even like the specific situations that you're going through. For example, today in today's group, we had a, a newbie who, uh, in addition to like realizing she's an adult child, she's also realized that perhaps her husband is a narcissist or has nar narcissistic traits. And that she's struggling with that. And I know there's definitely other members of the community that either are in that situation or have been in that situation. So let's damn the join. And if you're also new too, I should say this periodically. Um, what it used to be damn the join Patreon. It used to be the Patreon, but now it's the shit show. But I used to say join the damn Patreon. But then one day I said damn the join Patreon. And so now it's just been damn the join for forever and ever. Amen. Uh, okay, next, give me a follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, you know what I'm going to say. Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. This is required for all podcast listeners. Thanks, love you, bye. Okay, guys, well, it is my pleasure to introduce... Morgan Pommels. Her Instagram is the shit therapist, doctoral researcher. What the hell does that mean? It means I'm currently doing my doctorate degree, but I am not yet finished. Do you have like a thesis for that or how does that work for the program that you're in? Yeah. So it's a PhD in social work and it is a thesis program. So lots of research, lots of reading. So I'm still in the midst of all of that. You have a specific question that you're answering or how does it work? I'm really looking at the conceptualization of the emotionally immature parent. So how that comes to be and the potential transmission of that between the parent to child. So a lot of, some might say boring theory, but exciting stuff for me. Is there a lot of research out there regarding that? There's a lot written. Okay. In terms of research, I think it depends how you define and what you look at as research. People who think of like random control trials, where they're really looking at like objective data, that's really hard to get, right? But there's a ton of theory, there's a ton of thought and psychoanalytical work, for example, that could explain some of this stuff, but it is hard to really measure it quantitatively, for example, what that would all look like. Yeah. So are you conducting any specific studies yourself? 
at this stage, no, I'm really looking no. at the literature that's out there and coming to kind of create theory and, and understanding as to how one, someone ends up emotionally immature and two, what that looks like and how that can be passed down for their children. So I had Lindsay Gibson on the podcast, I don't know, a couple months ago. When was the first time, do you remember the first time that you heard the term emotionally immature parents? Yes, I do. And it wasn't even in my own practice or in school. It was through a friend and she was just describing her parent and having found this book in a way that really opened her eyes to it. And at the time I was a novice therapist really starting. And I remember thinking I need to get that book because it's so much of what my own clients were describing. And once I did it completely blew everything open for me. And I did some training from Dr. Gibson and really have now just become such a huge fan of her work. So yeah, total fan of the book, total fan of all the literature. I just, cause I couldn't figure out a way to get into contact with her. So I literally just left a voicemail on her practice phone number. Did you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Back. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So are you familiar? So are you familiar with the term adult child? I know obviously adult children of emotionally immature parents, but so for the purpose of this, it's initially it was adult children of alcoholics. Now it's adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. I would say emotionally immature parent qualifies under, I think it's just all kind of under this dysfunctional umbrella, right? And it manifests in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm really familiar with it, obviously from Dr. Gibson, but also from the alcoholic literature. I know that that term really came born out of, out of that space. And it depends on obviously who you're talking to, but a lot of what I work on and a lot of the people I work with is about the ways that our childhood are really still like showing up in our everyday adulthood lives and the ways that we are still very much driven by our childhood. And so the term adult child really comes up in my work a lot because as much as we feel like we're fully functioning, completely grown adults, we're still very much ran by some of these childhood wounds that are still just left lingering. I would say most of the population is. Totally. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Fully agree. <laughs> Which is why I created this podcast. Okay, so you decided to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. Was that your first career? No. No. So I became a social worker in 2014 and I worked frontline for a lot of years. And then I actually went and worked in humanitarian assistance for a lot of years. And I did a, a second master's degree in international relations, humanitarian assistance, and worked abroad for a couple of years. And then when I came back to Canada, after being very exhausted and burnt out and doing that life, I started my practice then when I came back and from there, it really quickly turned into me specializing in this work and being kind of completely consumed by this specific topic. Prior to learning about emotionally immature parents, prior to having the realization that you were raised in a family where that was the case, what was your understanding of the impact that your childhood had had on you? Did you think it was easy breezy? You knew it wasn't ideal? Sure. It wasn't great, but you didn't think that it really impacted you that much. Yeah. So I think for me, honestly, this is going to sound corny, but finding my now partner and like really falling in love was huge in having me see how some of my own childhood experiences really shaped the way that I love others. I love myself. Mm -hmm. 
So that was really foundational. And then some of just like this general stuff of not being able to maybe stop thinking about certain things or feeling like I really needed to work hard to kind of keep everything together. I remember going to a therapist and saying like, I just can't seem to make it work. I keep doing all of this stuff and like, it's just not all coming together. And she was like, well, that's okay. Maybe that's okay. And I remember thinking, no, Monica, it's not okay. What do you mean? Like, I have to figure this out. And so I think doing my own work really early on and realizing how much I was living in some of this, I have to make sure everything's okay all the time, no matter what, really showed me how my childhood still shows up in my, or still was showing up in my adulthood very easily. And what do you feel were some of the strongest limiting beliefs that you held? That's a really, I mean, this was so long ago. I think, I don't know. I think there's some fundamental beliefs that are really common for anybody who grew up with any kind of instability at home. One of them being that I have to keep it all together all the time, right? Because if I don't like X, Y, and Z is going to happen. And these X, Y's and Z's like they're, they're big, bad, scary things, but they're also not the most rational or logical thing that's going to happen. Right. But your brain and your body become really susceptible to fully believing that this thing is going to happen. Right. So I have to keep it all together. And if I don't, something scary is going to happen. And why am I not good enough to keep it all together? Which is actually Mm. something I talk about constantly, which I now just call the never good enough wound of the way all of these things just keep coming in as evidence of you can't keep it together. You're never going to be good enough. That time someone rolled their eyes at you or that time someone freaked out on you. It's all just proof and data that you will never be good enough. So now I, I'm very quick to point that out within people because it just becomes so glaringly obvious when something goes wrong or when someone's upset with them, it is completely internalized as I just, I'm not good enough. And why can't I be good enough? It's that confirmation bias. I was just having a conversation with my friend yesterday. She came out with like a, a workbook. It's her first workbook. And she received like one really nasty email. But other than that, I mean, amazing feedback, right? And it's like, we will just discount the hundreds of positive recognition that we receive and just focus on that one asshole, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what trauma does, right? Like trauma really limits the scope. Like I describe it as, you know, when we have our, when our healthy adult self, we can totally see everything around us. We can take in all of this different information. We can sit and be still and feel okay. But after trauma, like our scope and our visibility becomes so limited, it's like a paper towel roll. And we're just hunting for evidence to prove all of the trauma related beliefs to be true. Like I just need to find so much so that we will go out of our way to orchestrate it. To prove to ourselves that these beliefs are true, right? Like our scope becomes so, so, so limited. It keeps us safe. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I think for a lot of people, it's like that not good enough wound can manifest in various ways. It sounds like for you, maybe in more of a perfectionistic type way. For Mm. me, I was the scapegoat of my family and like the identified patient. So my not good enough wound shows up more in, you know, like procrastination and self-sabotage and not striving for what, or not, not striving, but you know what I mean? Just not fully living up to my potential because that was the role that was placed on me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see that a lot. And one thing I actually think is really common is for people, especially in that kind of position with that kind of wounding to really, you know, hate on themselves when they're not able to get something accomplished, when they're not able to fulfill the societal standard or maybe the the personal expectation, right? And yet not doing that might've actually kept you safe at one point, 
keeping oh, yourself absolutely out did. of the line of fire, right? Switching that narrative to were you actually just in survival mode and are you still there now really allows people to kind of have that more self-compassionate approach, but it's hard. Yeah. And you know what? The anger, this mm. is something that I've been aware of for a very long time. The anger piece for me is just now finally coming to the surface. So I learned that I was an adult child in 2018. So I grew up with an alcoholic mom and like a emotionally unavailable workaholic father. But I think because I'm a recovering alcoholic, I think that because, you know, my mom's sole sin to me was that she was an alcoholic. And that's something that, you know, I suffer with myself. There's almost been this like, spiritual bypassing, which I didn't really realize that I was doing as far as she's just sick. Mm -hmm. You know, finally, like a couple weeks ago, I'm like in an emotional flashback and I'm fucking, I finally, the anger came to the surface. I didn't fucking choose this. Mm -hmm. I didn't fucking choose this. Like here I am, I'm 34 years old. I'm feeling like I'm six years old and I'm going to die. And this is after like years and years and years of so much work on myself, you know, and and that comes up too with the whole procrastination and self-sabotage stuff too. Like I didn't choose to be the scapegoat. Like I didn't choose to be the ID identified patient. And so Hmm. yeah, it's just been like, finally the past year, the emotions are really finally starting to come to the surface for me. I've realized that much of my healing has been, you know, in the head, intellectual, cognitive, conscious. And I think it's just taken a while for me to thaw out for those emotions to finally bubble to the surface. What was your experience with that? Well, I think what's really interesting about anger, like when you say it took time for it to thaw out and like come to the surface, anger is a really interesting place and can become a really kind of pivotal place for healing because that's that spiritual bypassing can happen often. And we need that explanation of, you know, mate, like my parent was trying their best to hear this all the time. They were trying their best. And you know, what did they know? And and it was just the legacy passed down to them. And there's this place of letting people kind of, or letting yourself passively avoid all of the pain by just continuing to kind of have those lines. And that's an indicator that maybe you're not ready to feel it all. So mm-hmm. we create space for that and we let you stay there until you're ready to feel some of that hurt, right? Or until you realize that not feeling it is getting in the way of what you'd rather be doing. So that anger is often one of the first places to come up and it looks like so much resentment and so much pain, but really beautiful stuff can happen there. I often find that it's like the very first place of grief, mm. right? You finally get to start grieving all of the things you did not get. And as much as I am a childhood trauma therapist and I completely specialize in this specific niche, I often feel like I'm actually like a grief therapist because mm-hmm. so much space is held to just feel the hurt and the pain and the grief that comes up when you actually fully realize that the parent you longed for is never coming, right? Yeah, like no the shit. pain of all that is is heavy. And so that anger, like that comes up and that makes a ton of sense. We actually, we want to feel that and use that. I'm curious what you think about this. So, you know, I, um, as I said, so my mom was the alcoholic, but she was very much a periodic drinker. So maybe every few months, like if that, and then when I started acting out at 12, you know, like she got her shit together because she had to deal with me. Right. So from 12 to 19, she didn't really drink that much. And she was focused, you know, on, on me as the problem. But so 
my mom was like the most loving, wonderful mother, you know, except for those times when, you know, she was drinking. However, over the years, and especially since I got sober, and especially since I've started my adult child recovery, I mean, her alcoholism has just, I mean, it it progressed, you know, just so far. And so that loving mother that once was there is no longer there at all. And so it's really kind of screwed up in the sense of I'm grieving my childhood, but I'm also like grieving the mother that I also had in my childhood who is no longer present to me today. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. It is hard. And this is something it relates really well to growing up with an emotionally mature parent because there's this inconsistency, right? It'd be so much easier if it was all bad all the time, because then you could Mm -hmm. just say, this is awful all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's so clear that it's awful all the time. But sometimes there's like a glimmer of niceness. There's a warmth. Maybe they're gentle. Maybe they're loving. Maybe you get to have those nice moments with them, right? And so Mm -hmm. then you, you start to think and fantasize and hope and wonder if maybe it'll get all better, Right. And then then it just gets all bad. Yeah. 100%. 100%. And that jolt, like that whiplash, is so, so painful. And it contributes to such, such complex internal messaging, right? Of can we trust people? Can we not trust people? Is this person going to stay? Is this person not going to stay? Are they going to be mad at me this time and not mad at me the next time? So I really empathize with that because I think there's just this, this need for stability and this craving for a safe relational home that a Mm -hmm. lot of people don't get in these positions because there's so much inconsistency. Yeah. And it's also just the reality of the disease of alcoholism. You know, it's progressive. What have you found are useful tools in dealing with that anger? What are you telling your clients, practices, tools? What do you find is helpful? Accepting that you're angry, first of all, instead of fighting it, right? Let's just blanketly and like radically accept that you're upset and you're mad. You get to be upset and mad, validating it, identifying it. Sometimes I'll ask people to go under the surface because a lot of times anger is what's showing, but Mm -hmm. what's actually in there is a lot of hurt, Hurt. a lot of Mm -hmm. pain, a lot of betrayal. And so if we would just go under the surface a little bit, what's in there, what's in the body, moving the body, right? And sometimes moving it in a way that really feels aligned with the anger, like a punching bag, just moving Mm. in a way that feels good for them. But I think above all, like really drawing the linkages between the anger and the grief, right? Like if you ask someone why they're so angry, it usually comes back to because I didn't get all the things that I really needed and deserved. I didn't get the mother who X, Y, and Z. I didn't get the father who X, Y, and Z, right? I didn't get these things. And that makes me so mad. And the more you really tap into that, the more you hear, yes, there's anger, but there's also so much pain and hurt. And maybe we actually just need to really cry about it and grieve right? And honor all the things you didn't get, right? Like it's, it's so much more complex than I'm just like raging mad. It's usually a whole hodgepodge of things. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I would say always the hurt is underneath and I've been able to, to tap into the sadness, but the, but the anger piece is what's new to me. And it's interesting too, because in my family, the only emotions that were ever expressed were anger and numbness But I think that I learned early on that anger got me nowhere. Mm, Right. Like I I remember listening to my dad just like rage at my mom. And so then I would like yell at her to stop drinking, 
and it never worked. So then I think, you know, kind of what I internalized is there's no use for anger. What's mm. the point? Right. And in a lot of ways, anger can feel a little bit safer in comparison to other emotions because it feels productive. It's like I have this ball of something and I can do something with it versus grief, where we actually have to acknowledge a little bit of helplessness that I can't go back and change my childhood. I can't make my parents be who I want them to be. Staying in an angry state, we get to do things with that, right? Mm. It feels safer for a lot of reasons. What was a difficult emotion for you to start feeling? What was a difficult emotion for me to start feeling? Grief, grief. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a complicated relationship with grief. I've lost a lot of people in my own life. And I'm, I remain in that angry state without noticing until my really excellent therapist like to prompt me of like, Hey, this is, this anger is coming up. So I think for me, grief, and I think that's also because like societally, we don't talk about what to do with grief. Mm -hmm. We we also really sidestep grief. We also only view grief as like a death. Right. And so when someone says, you know, I'm going no contact or I'm still in contact with a parent, but it's really light and superficial, we don't often think while this person is grieving. Right. And so I think not only at the time did I not have the tools to really understand like what was going on with me, but no one around me was really reflecting like, hey, what you're going through is grief. And so that's why now it's a huge part of my own work. But I always get in touch with because of that helplessness, right? Because of that feeling of, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. So I actually just have to sit and cry and be mad and be sad as I work through it. Can you talk some about what you've seen with working with individuals as far as grieving your parent that's still alive? Mm. So this is so much of my work, so much of my work. I think the first thing for this really starts with helping people notice the ways they're still holding out on the healing fantasies, Mm -hmm. still holding out on. But if I just told my mom X, Y, and Z, or if I just explained it this way, or if I just used this tone, or maybe if I write a letter, or maybe if I do all of these things, they will get it. And maybe they'll go to therapy or maybe Mm. they'll finally hear me and apologize. We obviously, it's never my decision to make what someone does with that relationship. And I, and I always support people where they're at. And when someone is ready to, and is openly admitting, okay, I'm ready to grieve and I want to move on. And I have enough data to suggest that this isn't going to change. We still can get really caught up on the healing fantasy. Sometimes we don't even recognize we're doing it. We don't even realize we're holding out that hope. And so really helping people see the ways that there are parts of them still hooked a little bit of like, if I just say it this way, or if I just change this thing about myself, maybe they'll come around. That's usually where we're starting with the grief work is like, are we really opting into grieving this parent or are we still going to hold out hope? Cause it's very mm. common to keep one, to have one uh, foot in each camp. Mm. I think that what I've done, there's an acceptance of, you know, this is the the way it is. They're not like, you know, my mom's never going to be the mom that I want her to be, but I'm holding out hope and perhaps bypassing some of that grief by holding that hope in a, you know, in other relationships that are just serving as a, a representation of the relationship with my mother. Yeah. That, that repetition compulsion of, if we're still acting out that pattern and we're in a relationship with somebody who is just a figure of our, of our parent, it's kind of, I don't know. It's like kind of being in denial in a way. It's like kind of allows one to kind of ignore, bypass, not address 
the grief there because we're holding out the hope in the other individual. Totally. It's productive, right? We've learned that at some level we, we can't, uh, be able to, we can't change our parents, right. In some way we've learned that on some level. So instead I'm just going to like really focus on my partner or on the people I'm dating. And I'm going to try to change them in all the ways that I wish that I could have changed my dad or my mom or whoever it's super productive. And it's again, an an extension of us not being willing or not yet ready to give up on that truth, on that reality of wanting a parent in that one way, right? Like it's, it's, it's really hard to accept that. So yeah, I think you're right. There is something really enticing around continuing to reenact our traumas with people because it gives us something to focus on and something to feel a little more control on. And I also just want to say It's really common to think that healing means you're never going to fuck up again or that it's all going to look a certain way. And that's the thing that like is so shocking to us. And it can become this extension of like self-hate the way that we don't create space to still be humans who have pain that's lingering that sometimes draws us to behave in certain ways. There's a reason for some of this stuff, right? There's a real so, okay, I want to talk about emotional coercion. Can you explain what this is? Yeah, it's the use of, of fear, guilt, uh, self-doubt, and shame to contr- to essentially control someone, to control in the context of an emotionally mature parent. Emotionally mature parents will do this to get their child to behave in a certain way, to control their child's behavior, to keep that relationship intact. So fear, guilt, shame, or self-doubt are common themes Um, and it's all about controlling the child. And this is something that's probably typically not conscious on behalf of the parent. Yeah, honestly. And this is where it can get, um, you might get various opinions on this. For me, I normally see it not be conscious because an emotionally immature parent is working really hard to try to get their own needs met. And because Mm -hmm. of that stunted emotional maturity, they are turning to emotionally immature ways to get their needs met. So coercing someone using fear or guilt or shame or self-doubt is a younger way of operating. So it's not always that it's this conscious, deliberate, intentional choice of I'm going to treat you this way. Instead, it's coming normally from a place of panic and fear and mm. and like my own needs aren't getting met. And so now I'm going to panic a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's not always a conscious choice. Can you give some examples of what this would look like? This can look like, um, think like, I'm just thinking two of the holidays, like, um, comparison of siblings, like your brother seems to come home all the time. He's, he clearly very, Mm -hmm. very much values the family. It's, it's a shame that you don't, right. Or if you give your parent feedback and, um, about something they might've, um, done to hurt your feelings, they say something like, well, I guess I'm just the worst mom Mm. and you should be more grateful after everything we've done for you. Like the underlying subtext of that is there's a certain way you should be behaving according to my standards. And because you're not, that's a problem because you're not, you need to change. And what is, what would you say is the best way for someone to recognize that this is what's going on? The absolute best way is getting in touch with your body because we know that feeling when we can make some space and really get in touch with our, our body. We know that feeling of like, Oh, I'm being guilt tripped, being shamed. I'm being taught to doubt myself. Right. There's a, there's something that happens there. And so I'll work with people to really identify what does that feel like for a lot of people? It's this twisting in the stomach. It's the heart sinking. 
there's something going on. And so as soon as we identify that, we can actually do things to, to kind of disable and disarm that a little bit. Um, but I don't invite people, or I don't recommend that people actually get into the content-based conversation of like, well, what do you mean? You know, my brother Mm -hmm. comes home once and I came home twice just because it's not the holidays. I don't actually recommend the content-based topical stuff. Instead, I just identifying first that someone is even trying to do this for you or do this to you is the first place to start. And then what is the best way to respond to that? It's, well, there's a couple of different ways. It depends on the level, right? That you're experiencing. The thing that I teach most people is called being slippery, right? And so instead of taking the bait, you're sidestepping the bait, you're sidestepping the landmine. I I invite people to think about it as like a dodgeball is being thrown at you and you just kind of like step out of the way, right? And so agreeing with them, right? Agreeing with your emotionally mature parent. Yeah. My brother does come home more often than me, period. Instead of explaining or justifying yourself, right? Or like, oh, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing right? We're trying to stay out of the line of fire versus getting into these kind of content-based conversations because those conversations are never really conversations. They're conflicts, they're attempts to kind of control and dominate. They don't normally get anybody anywhere. And so we actually want to opt out of those entirely. Mm-hmm. No, they make things worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think it's common that from time to time, we are going to slip back into that yeah. Uh, false hope that maybe if I say it this way, or maybe if I do, I think it's unrealistic to think that we're never going to slip back into that behavior. So if one finds themselves like, you know, doing that, would you have any suggestions for that as far as, you know, pulling out of the behavior? Mm-hmm. So I'm teaching a class on this exact stuff right now, because you're a hundred percent right. Like it is not easy, especially after, after 30 years of always defending yourself of always, I think you need to justify your behaviors for me, your new therapist to come along and say, yeah, don't do that anymore. Like, you're not going to just get that right. Like you're going to probably say, fuck you, Morgan. Um, you don't know what you're right. Like there's going to be some resistance to that. So the body's going to do what the body's going to do. We want to at least start course correcting. So as soon as we notice it, we then want to be opting out of it as much as possible getting in touch with your body, identifying it's happening, even if it's like 10 comments in, or even if it's three hours later and you're like, oh mm-hmm. shit, I took the bait. You just starting to realize that you're taking the bait is how you can get there quicker, how you can realize that quicker so you can sidestep mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. sooner. Another post of yours that I saw that I thought was really interesting was regarding when your attempts to set boundaries are not being effective. Could you speak to that? Yes. So you'll hear often on social media, like this idea of boundaries being using I statements and sharing, you know, this is my boundary because it hurt me this way. So this is what I'm uh, stating as my boundary, and you need to follow that. They're kind of these like seemingly these scripts are longer monologues that explain kind of the inner workings of your world and giving it to someone really clearly. And that works for people who are emotionally mature because they're actually interested Mm -hmm. in, in caring for you, right? We want to know if you think of the person you love the most, I want to know their boundaries. I want to be able to love them in the way that they want to be loved. So yes, tell me about your boundary. Tell me about how that made you feel. Tell me about um, where I did it that, that, you know, that really hurt you. And I'll sit with you through that. And we'll have that conversation Mm -hmm. that works when someone cares enough to show up that way and has the capacity. It's not just about caring, but has the capacity to show up that way. 
when we're dealing with an emotionally immature person who does not really have Mm. the tolerance to sit in shame or rejection, Mm -hmm. which is what boundaries are interpreted as, as, uh, as an emotionally immature person, a boundary is a form of rejection. It's a, you don't want me and I'm not good enough. And how come we can't be close? Right. And so when you're dealing with someone who does not have the ability to sit in that and tolerate that, those long monologues of, okay, yeah, so this hurt me. And what I'm, what I'm asking is that you do this. And if you don't do this, then X, Y, Z is going to happen. That doesn't really work. So we can state the boundary. We can be clear of, I'm not going to talk about this, but we don't go into these longer monologues explaining our inner emotional worlds, because at that point we're likely creating conflict and just more friction and more content for the emotionally immature person Mm -hmm. to take that and begin arguing with you. Right. So it's, it's, it's quicker it's swift. It's, this is my boundary. And now we're moving on. What about, this is something I was talking about with a friend recently, Mm. lying when it is to protect Mm. yourself. So, you know, let's say you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to spend that time with your parents because um, it's going to be too much on you. And as opposed to being like, uh, let's say simply saying I'm not going to be able to make it like that's not going to suffice. You know what I mean? Let's say you're in a situation where you do need to have a reason, you know, and in Hmm. situations, Mm -hmm. is it, uh, my opinion is that when it really is, when not lying could result in harm to you, that it is okay in those situations. How do you feel about that? I think that's really, I mean, first of all, it's always an option on the table, right? Like it is, people have that option. It's always available to them if that's what they think they need to do to survive. And sometimes we do things all the time. Not sometimes we do things all the times, but sometimes we do things in various times and various contexts that are against what our values would be to keep ourselves safe. Because truthfully, trauma and pain cannot live really in the same place as and aligned and embodied, Mm -hmm. like a a life that is aligned to our values. We can't really be living a life aligned to our values while also experiencing trauma. So it's an option on the table. I would question this idea of it has to be a certain way because this again is going to depend on certain contexts. And if people are really are in the line of fire, right. And are being hurt, then maybe that's what needs to happen. But you saying, for example, you mentioned earlier, um, you said something to the effect of like, I just can't make it wouldn't have been enough, like over the phone or something like that. And mm-hmm. I would invite you to explore why, right? Why wouldn't it be enough? If we just kept saying that over and over, I just, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I'm really sorry. I can't make it. I won't be there. They're continuing to get amped up. They're continuing to get upset. I'm really sorry. I can see you're upset. I just can't make it. Right. So do we really have to be going to these places that can kind of leave us a little more vulnerable and like we have to hide parts of ourselves or that we have to people please in order to keep someone else happy? Like, is that really still the reality of today? Because it's normally a reality in childhood. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But as a fully grown adult with autonomy, do we still have to be going there? That's the question I really would invite people to explore. But this this idea of lying and, and not being able to be fully honest, I mean, it's certainly a common experience for people who grew up with emotionally mature parents. And it is one that is very context specific. So I am someone who like a lot of people, and I'm sure like you once, who was under the impression like, oh, I was not physically or sexually abused. 
How bad could it truly have been? What does the research show on that? Well, first of all, trauma and that type of uh, emotional wounding, any type of emotional wounding is not based on what happened to you. It's based on how that was experienced in the body, right? So two people can go through the exact same things and one can come out with significant traumatization. So it's really common to go to this place of like, well, I didn't experience X, Y, Z. And that's also common because in our society until very recently, trauma was almost synonymous with PTSD. Yeah. It was synonymous with like, exactly, right? These really uh, these really egregious one-off events or maybe mm-hmm. multiple events, but they were very obviously violent, right? And so that's what we we understood trauma to be, but that's obviously all changed now. And that's a, that's a new conversation we're having. And so people in this um, space of, of saying things like, you know, but it wasn't X, Y, Z, in some ways that might be some avoidance of like, well, it's, I'm going to downplay and minimize because it's too painful to go there. It's a reflection of what society also thinks. And it's just simply not how we measure trauma. It can totally hurt for you, even if it wasn't all of these really egregious things. It can totally still mm-hmm. hurt. It can cause the same symptoms. It can cause a ton of trauma. What has been some of the most interesting things that you've learned from doing this research for your, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear. I mean, I'm sure you've read some. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I think the thing that stands out the most is the way that growing up with an emotionally mature parent can really be akin mm. to this level of like brainwashing. When you grow up in a home where someone else's needs were always the priority and yours were really never the forefront in the way they needed to be. And the whole family, the whole household, the whole system is oriented towards catering to one parent or one person's needs, the way that you really begin to internalize your role, internalize the understanding of your existence, of how you should show up in relationships, so much so that I can be working with someone for a lot of years, right? And it can take a lot of time to even just admit Mm -hmm. that some of the things that happened were wrong or shouldn't have happened or painful because there is this whole internal coding of like, but they did their best and they were always there for me and I should be grateful and... I don't get to have my own thoughts because that's a whole part of the the emotional coercion as well is like you're wrong for having certain thoughts and your thoughts are wrong. And so everything that they might be experiencing that's coming up for them is making them question their own experiences. And that's hard to deal with when you've been told to think and act a certain way. So that consistently shows up, not just in the research, but in my practice as well as really a stuck point for a lot of people of letting themselves just heal. The first place we have to really go to is like being honest about our experiences as a child. And that type of kind of emotional brainwashing gets in the way of all of that. And it's, it's blatantly obvious at some point that the inability to go there is a result of you being handed this legacy of how you're supposed to act and talk about your emotionally mature parent. Mm. And I would assume that extends to, you know, being emotionally brainwashed in our sense of self. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, my, all my work is about healing your parent wound and coming home to yourself. And that, that second part of that statement is really important because I work with so many people and what ends up happening is you can wake up like 40 years later and be questioning, Mm. who am I? Like really, who am I? Because my whole life I've been taught to 
be um, um, secondary to people, right? That my own needs, they're wrong and they don't exist. And so who am I? I'm constantly having those conversations with people and we're, we're taking time to build up that sense of self and get in touch with that sense of self because it's been so dormant. It's ne- it was never really nurtured, right? Like if you didn't have someone getting down on your level when you came home from grade one or whatever grade saying, wow, like, tell me about your day. It sounds like you really like science. Tell me more. How are you supposed to grow up knowing that you like science? You need that modeled to you. You need yourself modeled back, right? And so that is what we can be doing in, in therapy at like 40, 50, 60 years old is really just developing this concept of who mm. you are. Have there been any like pivotal shifts, whether that is through working with a particular client or something that you've learned or something that's happened within your own healing that has really shifted how you work with individuals? Can you say that again? Has there been something? I don't Maybe just any like kind of ahas or just kind of something that occurred that caused you mm. to to see things differently that shape that shifted the way in which you work with your clients. That makes sense. I think one thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that kind of comes to mind is this. I mean, it's the way you're also taught to be a therapist in grad school of like, be a little more, you know, distant, cold, it's a professional relationship you're a health professional, they're the client, like this kind of distance that can be created. And now that I'm years into my practice and done all this training and research, I don't Mm. buy into that in any way. And I think realizing that people are coming to me for the first time in seeking a, and getting a warm, supportive, loving space, someone who, who genuinely cares about them and wants to see them grow. What that means for me as a clinician is no longer, you know, so what are the negative thoughts? And like, should we challenge them? When you grow up with an emotionally mature parent, it's really easy to feel like you're defective, right? So my Mm. whole shift in becoming a clinician years ago, when I started in this work, one of those shifts was really realizing um, my role is to, to do none of that, to actually be the warm, the warm, like attachment figure that was always necessary Right. And I think there's a lot of schools of thought around of therapy and and the way we conceptualize this mm. work that would be a little, I don't know, against that or think that that's not really what the therapeutic work is about. But it, it doesn't make sense to me if you've never really had that parent to come in and get more kind of uh, relational data that there's something wrong with you or that you're defective in some way. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think it really shifted for me in the way that I see people and how I show up for people, it's a lot more real. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just huge. It absolutely does. And what it makes me think of is, you know, they say it doesn't, the, the modality doesn't necessarily matter. It's, it's feeling really seen and heard and understood by your therapist. And I don't know, like I can say for myself, the moments in which I've really felt that with my therapists have been when they've been mm-hmm. able to share yeah. something from their own life that relates to what I'm experiencing. I don't, yeah, if somebody's not willing to share any, and I understand there's boundaries and stuff like that, but I think that that's why, you know, like 
12 step programs and like peer support groups, there's something that's so valuable and special and healing about, you know, having that other person be able to relate to what you're experiencing. Totally. And that's something, I mean, when people first come to me, something I always say is like, if this never fits for you, like if this, if we're 10 sessions in and this doesn't feel good, tell me it's okay to tell me that you can, you can text me that you can email me that you can, you can tell me to my face, but the most important thing is you feel like I get you. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel that this is not going to work. I could be trained in all of the best trauma treatment modalities. And if you feel like I don't get you, then this isn't going to be what you need. You're hundred percent right. Mm. What? So let's say that somebody is just coming to the realization that they grew up with emotionally immature parents. Like where do you typically have someone start? Well, I always recommend the book. I'll first get them to to read some of the book to see if they uh, resonate with what's in there. A lot of psychoeducation on what that means to have an emotionally mature parent, but it really is about um, letting them kind of come to this place of understanding of what it all was for them. Because for a lot of adult children, emotionally mature parents, their reality is like prescribed to them. They're told what they like, what they need to do how they need to act, if someone is good, if the person they're dating is good, or if the person they're dating is bad, they're prescribed a lot. And so I do um, some stuff to help create a Mm -hmm. container, a space, but it really is about giving someone that space to really come to understand, well, what was that experience like in childhood? And how did that make you feel? Like, let's just sit there for a second. How did that make you feel? Before we move into the justifications and the minimizing, tell me how it feels right? Because that's the most important thing, whether or not the label even fits. Someone could say for the rest of their lives, like, I don't feel like that label of having an emotionally mature parent fits for me, but I know all this other stuff really Mm. hurt. The label is less important. The wounding and what's going on within someone is Mm -hmm. more important. What about for your, in your own healing, how much inner child work have you done? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's interesting. There's, there's this, inner child work is getting a lot of, um, play recently. And I think because it's really accessible, like, I think people like the idea of really visualizing their younger self and being able to tap into that. There's a lot of different modalities that incorporate this concept of like having different parts of you. I've certainly done parts work, right. Um, I've certainly done, yeah, I've certainly done a lot of parts work and really getting in touch with kind of my core emotions. And it has your parts been like inter- internal family systems or what types of parts emotionally work? focused, um, emotionally focused therapy, which what is that? It's, it's an, it's a modality that focuses on, uh, reorienting painful emotional experiences using, this is all really clinical stuff, but using emotional experiences. experiential, uh, type of experiences, like new, new corrective experiences with your therapist, for example, someone being able to hold space for your pain, getting in touch with a younger part that might be hurt about something. And then that therapist really holds space for that pain and provides a corrective experience. I've never personally done internal family systems. I know therapists love it. I have read a lot about it and I know that it's, it's really, really highly regarded. I've never personally done it. But parts work in general does give us like a framework to talk about things because there are younger parts of us that will hijack our adult lives, right? Like there are younger parts of us 
we can be 45 in the in the drive through and it's actually like 10 year old you coming forward terrified to have to pay this bill because you know what financial scarcity is like right and so mm. maybe we don't always call it inner child work but this this idea that there are multiple parts to us is really important for healing so for the what you, you said emotionally focused parts work so would that if you're like so let's say you're in you're in session with your therapist would that would that be like checking in with the body mm -hmm. seeing where it's up in the body and communicating with that part yeah it can look like that it can also um look like checking in with the emotional centers the emotional cores rather than specific sensations i'm trained in somatic somatic trauma therapy as well um, so rather than maybe getting in touch with that, like twinge in the stomach, it's more about getting in touch with that, um, that emotion that's living in the stomach. If we give it a color, if we get even give it a name, right. If we give it even like a certain animal, right. Maybe it feels like a lazy cat and it just like, won't move. And that's what we call and make sense of your depression. Maybe it feels like five-year-old you, right. But yeah, getting to know and coloring in the various parts of yourself, because we're not just this like monolithic version of ourselves. We're not just one part. Was there, do you have a profound experience that you had in your own healing journey? Like something that really stands out for you? Nothing, nothing, nothing in a moment. But when I think back to some of the relationships I had with certain therapists, like I could cry thinking about some of my, my original early on therapists who just, yeah, who were just such good fits, like we would say, I'm sure clinically, but just were people who were so safe for me and so able to be this like steady safety. So no one moment, but like, there's just this collection of humans that I will always keep in the back of my mind as being so pivotal to my growth as like, you know, a human being and my own healing, but also just as a therapist, because the best way to become a good therapist is to get a shit ton of therapy. Um, so yeah, there's people. And that's great to hear because, you know, this was my experience and this is experience of so many people that are listening that we spent years in therapy without our therapist being able to identify, oh, this is complex PTSD or, oh, this is the result of, of your childhood. And, you know, I'm so grateful for people like you that are out there talking about this stuff because there are still so many therapists out there that are clueless on this shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the system, I mean, first of all, the education, the education is going to look different per country, per state, per degree, per license. Like it's, 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 the education is really fragmented. So it's going to look really different. We also know that uh, literature on trauma and psychology is really dominated by a certain demographic of older white gentlemen, right? So it's not capturing everyone's experience. Um, so, and that's what I really try to do on my very tiny corner of the internet. It's like, what can I provide? What writing can I put out there? What information can I put out there to capture the stuff that isn't caught in the random controlled trials that can't be caught in those trials, right? What is the nuance and the complexity and the gray? And how can I use that to create a space for people who don't see themselves reflected um, but still need to be reflected. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's, I think that's the one thing that has been good to come out of social media. What are your hopes as far as the, through this research? Like, what are you, what are you hoping to gain from this? Hmm. No one's asked me that. I hope to like formally solidify uh, on a scholarly level, this concept of an emotionally immature parent 
so that all clinicians, anybody feels validated and knowing that this is like a thing that we fully 100% um, can all agree on that this exists and that it's painful. I mean, there's already this wounding that happens with growing up this type of parent of like, did I make it all up? Was I just being dramatic? Was I just being too sensitive? And so I really think my attempting to depict what that all looks like is an ode Mm -hmm. to that type of wounding of like, you didn't make it all up. You weren't too dramatic. You were not being too sensitive. You would never come to my office just for the (laughs) hell of it. Like, that's not fine. Why would you want this pain? You wouldn't opt into this pain. So I think that's a big part of it. So you said, you know, there's not a lot of like hard, like clinical data, but that there's a lot of writing on this. How far back? Like how old is some of this stuff? Did it have a different name before? That's a really good question. And I I can't do that answer justice. I know the most kind of recent stuff. I mean, we can go back to like the parent-to-child relationship and the way Freud was talking about things, but really it was Dr. Gibson who kind of coined emotionally immature. And I think that opened up a lot for people because we always talked about narcissism, right? We knew that that was a thing. And we always talked about abusive um, parents, but there's this gray area that wasn't always being caught. And emotionally immature really opened that up for people. And that book, I mean, that book flies off the shelf for a reason, right? It's just so validating because it catches the in-betweens. Those who are like, it wasn't great. It wasn't like the picture perfect white picket home, but it also might not have been completely, you know, the narcissistic uh, depiction of turmoil and like it is in the movies. And I'm like, I'm, I fit somewhere in the gray. So where, where's my experience? I think that's what she did so well. And what I think we all need to be a little really grateful for is the way that she she captured that nuance. And so that really came mm-hmm. through with her work. Yeah, but it's so interesting um, looking at all this stuff. And it's great that you're doing it. Do you are you going to stay in practice? You want to continue to work one on one with individuals? Yeah, yeah, that part's not going away. I really, really love that. I do group coaching as well. Um, and I love that, too. But there's something really beautiful and just beautiful about that one-to-one healing work that I will never, someone will have to pry that from my hands because I'm, Do I, you know, yeah, she's that stuff's not going anywhere. Too. Um, Catherine Gildener. Have you heard of her? Did you read her book? It's called good morning monster. I don't think so. She's a oh, I've, some she's people awesome. have recommended me this book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's yes. been working with you know, yeah, it's on my list. children. And so that book is about like the five or six most impactful um, patients that she, clients that she had. And it's all about childhood shit. Fascinating. So good. So, so, so. Okay. Okay. So talk about what you have coming up for the holidays. I know you're kind of jazzed about all of this stuff. It's fun times, fun times. <laughs> yeah. yes uh yes fun 
in the sense that it can also be incredibly traumatic. And so that's why I'm running Protect Your Peace. Um, it's my masterclass of group coaching program for those who are still opting into having relationships with their emotionally mature parents, because actually mm. nine times out of 10, people still want to have some mm. sort of contact and relationship. But how do we do that mm. safely? And how do we do that while having boundaries? And how do we do that while not being in the line of fire? So Protect Your Peace really helps people navigate Things like being slippery, getting out of the way, not um, not being the person that things are offloaded onto, identifying emotional coercion the moment it happens and stepping out of the way, how to actually enact a boundary in a effective way for someone who might be emotionally immature. Um, and then the group coaching program also talk, talks a lot and supports people through that grief process that we were talking about earlier, because that is mm -hmm. something that takes a lot of time, but it's also something that community in particular, we know with, with grief work, that community is super powerful. So that's going on between, is that um, live? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And can people still participate in, or is it yep. closed? Nope. People can still okay, wonderful. participate. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. And and then what are other ways that people can work with you? If you're in Canada, you can book with me at my private practice. Um, or you can... I have a good amount of Canadians that listen. Yeah, nice. Okay, so yeah, mm -hmm. if you're in Canada, you can book with me at my private practice. Or you can sign up for a lot of my free content where I do a lot of educating and just making sure that people know that they are not making any of this up. That this is a very real wound mm. and it sticks with us for a lifetime if we are not aware of it. Um, and yeah, those are the ways. When is, when the hell is Canada's Thanksgiving again? Cause it's a different day, right? Yeah. When we had it? it already. It was the You're beginning already. of October. How do you celebrate it? What do you do? Same thing. Like turkey okay. dinner. If you're Ukrainian, you might also have like a ham. Are oh. you Ukrainian? Well, <laughs> there's people in my family. That's so random. If you're not, <laughs> no, no, no. there's people in my family who are Ukrainian. I'm, I'm okay. uh, Jamaican and Canadian. So Thanksgiving is not that huge of a thing for us but for some people it's absolutely huge so yeah it's no, it's not that different from america same kind of thing football all that stuff so you you have like jerk instead of ham you have like jerk chicken or something <laughs> no. like goat you have a goat no. <laughs> my mother cooks a turkey all the same um yeah and her her partner is ukrainian so there's you know the whole ham and produce okay. thing but yeah Okay. Well, cool. Well, I will include all of your shit in the show notes and this has been such a pleasure. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I just want to say my people really love your podcast. So oh, good. Uh, yeah, just like, thank you. Cause you give a lot of people that I work with people in my community, like a really safe space to exist. So thank you for that. Oh, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's great. Thank you. Just let it all go. What's making you slow now? Just let it all go.